Hello to all my fellow 101 podcast history listeners. It's good to be back on the air. It wasn't that long ago that I had um, talked with my audience about Georgia, the last of the 13 colonies and their signers. Well, tonight's podcast wraps up the book, Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence by Denise Kiernan and Joseph D. Agnes. I tell you, what a great book uh, this has been, uh, especially knowing that, uh, well, first off, I had read it last year, but rereading through a good uh, chunk of the book, especially having talked about 34 of the 56 signers, uh, in um, in our discussions or pre, uh, in our set all sessions total, and as I had said from the last podcast, um, if I had talked about all 56 signers total, I'm not sure where I would be at in terms of a colony, but given that I was able to talk about 61% of the signers, I feel like I had been able to cover enough ground, but I do believe that an epilogue, meaning an ending to this um, book, is appropriate to, um, to share. I know I have uh, touched base that um, all 56 signers did make the ultimate sacrifice by putting aside their differences and coming together as one um, team and I uh, and us we ourselves approach to um, to declare our official separation from England. There are some things that I, I do believe are important to uh, mention. It turns out that not all of the founding fathers began their lives in the colonies. I have mentioned uh, some of the signers, some of the 34 signers I mentioned. I, I did note that they um, were from um, either England or Ireland. But can anybody take a guess as to how many signers actually were born in Europe? I'll give you a hint. The number is between 7 and 10. The answer is 8. There were 8 signers who signed the Declaration of Independence as the authors called them, the immigrant signers. Well, it turns out that um, four of those eight signers were from Pennsylvania. Those four were Robert Morris, James Smith, George Taylor, and James Wilson. It also turns out that um, there was one signer from New York being a Francis Lewis he was um, another uh, signer. He was actually from Wales. Um, as for the four men from Pennsylvania, uh, Robert Morris, James, um, not James Smith, but, um, well, it actually turns out Robert Morris was the only one from England. As for James Wilson, he was from Scotland. George Taylor and James Smith, who were from Pennsylvania, were from Ireland. Uh, Matthew Thornton of New Hampshire was also from Ireland. And we know that um, John Witherspoon of New Jersey came from Scotland. So I think the best way to sum it up is that these eight men who were not originally from the 13 colonies or from colonial America, 
It's safe to say that all eight of these men came somewhere from the UK or what is known as the United Kingdom. And it is safe to say even if they came from the United Kingdom, their presence was felt when signing this uh, document. Uh, even uh, Button Gwinnett from Georgia hailed from Gloucester, England. Now, I also found it uh, worthy to mention um, a fellow named Charles Thompson. I mentioned this man's name uh, from the Massachusetts Delegation podcast early on when we uh, talked about this book. Charles Thompson was one of two men who signed the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July. The other one was, the other person was uh, John Hancock, who was the president of the Continental Congress. Uh, Charles Thompson was Mr. Hancock's secretary. Historians have often called him the 57th signer. The man John Adams referred to as the Samuel Adams of Philadelphia, the life of the cause of liberty. Well, it turns out that, that besides being Secretary of Congress, and he was the Secretary of Congress for 15 years through both the First and Second Continental Congresses and into the Confederation Congress as well, delegates may have come and gone, but Charles Thompson remained. Besides being a secretary, uh, he was a Philadelphia merchant. Turns out he was also an amateur distiller of rum. I think it's safe to say Mr. Thompson didn't miss out on anything, in large part because for being Secretary of Congress for 15 years, he saw it all. He saw good times. He saw not-so-good times. But what he did see was colonial America officially, not only officially declaring itself independent from England, but, but by becoming a united front, or should I say a United States, that um, would stand tall in any form of opposition affecting the people's well-being. Besides keeping track of all Congress's um, essential um, activities through uh, congressmen's actions and votes, he is credited with assembling the final design of the Great Seal of the United States. It turns out that there were three prior committees that had tried to come up with the best emblem, or should I say logo, for the new country, but it was Thompson who combined elements from, from the previous three attempts into the design that is still, available, still visible today on the back of the dollar bill. I think George Washington would be very pleased to know that um, that this has um, still that this worked out in large part because you know George Washington was first in everything, especially being the first in the hearts of his country. What was one of Mr. Thompson's final duties? It was to travel to Mount Vernon to notify George Washington that he had been elected as the first president of the United States. Remember, people, we don't have television back then. There is no CNN news to say um, the winner of this uh, state being the projected winner is so-and-so. I think it's safe to say that George Washington probably knew that he was going to be president. Of course, there, were his, there are historians who know that there were people who wanted to refer to him as his excellency, 
they wanted to refer to him as his um, superior. But in the end, I think presidency, or should I say the president, is a more fitting title. After all, Washington is presiding over, con- over the American people, but he had also fought a long war to keep um, kings and people of, um, who had titles of nobility out of, the, out of our country. So, Mr. Thompson rode back with the incumbent, attended Mr. Washington's inauguration, and, ten, and later that year in 1789, uh, Mr. Thompson uh, stepped down from his, his post. I'm not sure when he died. I probably should have done some research on that, and I do apologize. But he did spend the remainder of his days writing scholarly books and trans, translating the Bible from Greek into English. So Charles Thompson did leave, or I should say he led a great fulfilled life. I, I'm not sure who else would have been able to have fulfilled his shoes if, if it hadn't been for um, this particular individual being the, uh, what you call, daily bookkeeper, the, the uh, recorder of events. I mean, this man was the one that... Um, he saw it all. I mean, he might as well have been like the um, like a presiding officer in, in the Senate and all. So we have Mr. Thompson to thank for um, for his uh, dedicated service. Lastly, um, if some well, I wouldn't say lastly. We haven't gotten to that part yet. Pardon me. Um, if anybody were to ask me, given that I've covered just over 60% of uh, the signers who signed the Declaration of Independence and not just signed, but their li- livelihoods and their lives. If somebody were to ask me, which of the 13, si- which 13 signers, being one from each colony, would you want to have had the opportunity to meet? And these 13 would not, any one of these men in terms of a group of 13, would have to be separate from that famed committee of five. Which 13 would you want to meet? Uh, Josiah Bartlett of New Hampshire, John Hancock of Massachusetts, William Ellery of Rhode Island, Francis Lewis of New York, Oliver Wolcott of Connecticut, Abraham Clark of New Jersey, Caesar Rodney of Delaware, Charles Carroll of Maryland, Benjamin Rush of Pennsylvania, George Wythe from Virginia, Joseph Hughes of North Carolina, Arthur Middleton of South Carolina, and Lyman Hall of Georgia. Those 13 I would, I, I would um, find um, worth meeting. I'm not saying that the others would not have been uh, good candidates, but after having read about those 13 in particular, all of them played not just a crucial role with getting the uh, Declaration of, of Independence not just signed, but, but their ideas that they put into play, but each of those 13 had very unique stories to tell. Uh, let's take, for example, uh, Charles Carroll of Maryland. What, what did I find to be incredibly amazing about Charles Carroll? He is the only Roman Catholic 
of the entire um, 56-man delegation to Philadelphia. And remember, people, Catholics were barred from holding office. Catholics were barred from just about everything in colonial America. But as time went along and hostilities grew towards England, it's safe to say that this may have been a gradual starting point with a greater acceptance between Protestant and Catholic. Religion was able to be put aside, and Charles Carroll not only got the fame he needed out of Maryland, but he brought his um, unique uh, talents and traits to the to the whole governing body in Philadelphia where he was widely accepted and he was the last signer to die at the age of 95 in 1832 the fact that it wasn't so much that he was the the only Roman Catholic who signed the Declaration of Independence the fact that he was the final signer to die and he had outlived all of his other fellow comrades who were of Protestant faith So it just goes to show you that even one's faith can leave a lasting uh, legacy in a a great piece of history like this one being the Declaration of Independence. Another fellow I found um, interesting was uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who became a doctor. You know, uh, Benjamin Rush, you know, he tried being in the military. It did not work out in large part because while yes he may have liked sharing news about other people he also ran into a bit of a problem where he would often say too much that was on his mind and there's that famous phrase out there that famously states this don't always say everything that's on your mind and there were some moments where Benjamin Rush did say too much that was on his mind that got back to high-ranking people like George Washington. And it's one thing to have a disagreement about something, but when it gets into the hands of the wrong person, you never know how bad it can backfire. Well, in the end, Benjamin Rush turned out to be a better uh, doctor than, say, a uh, person in, from within military affairs. But what I liked most about Benjamin Rush was the fact that he was able to bring Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. He was able to help renew their friendship. Their friendship had fallen apart for about nine years, or maybe about nine to twelve years from the time Adams became president and when he left office. But even during the time of Jefferson's presidency from 1801 to 1809, they were not speaking. However, That changes after Jefferson leaves office. It just didn't happen overnight, but Benjamin Rush had a very um, unexpected dream where he did envision two old friends reconnecting through means of someone else who had worked with them. And what do you know? Benjamin Rush was the man who um, brought John Adams and Thomas Jefferson together not just for a brief moment in time, but for the last 17 years of their lives. So if it weren't for Benjamin Rush, I don't know who would have been able to have brought Thomas Jefferson and John Adams back together, and especially knowing that both of those men died on the same day, being July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of our um, independence from England, 
and knowing that both men, perhaps some of their final words were, had to do with either the 4th of July or about one another, Thomas Jefferson saying, you know, is today the 4th? In other words, did I make, did I live to see our, our birthday in terms of our country's independence? And John Adams saying, Thomas Jefferson survives. What a fitting tribute to both men, not only for their country, but how they would have uh, acknowledged one another even on their deathbed and deathbeds, but knowing that neither one did not know that the other was in um, was on the verge of um, of their life coming to an end. But there again, thank you, Benjamin Rush, for bringing uh, two former. Um, forefathers back to, uh, not just back to life, but by renewing their friendship. If I had to pick another uh, individual who did a lot in terms of, um, not just for the country, but perhaps for his um, colony, it was Lyman Hall of Georgia. As I mentioned from the Georgia uh, podcast uh, session, if it hadn't been for Lyman Hall, uh, I'm not sure who would have been willing to have dragged Georgia into um, the discussion for independence because as we all know or most of us knew from this past podcast that the reason why Georgia didn't send any delegates to the First Continental Congress in 1774 was because they were fighting, the colony was fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation um, Confederacy and what does Georgia need to protect themselves against the Creek Indian Nation? They need uh, rifles. They need, you know, ammunition. So who's going to provide that for Georgia? England. Not just England, but the Crown. Well, Lyman Hall sees things differently. It's not so much fighting a war with the, these Creek, with the Creek Indian Nation, but if all of the 12 colonies are on board with wanting to declare their independence from England, then Georgia's got to find a way to go along. Lyman Hall, being at St. John's Parish, he, um, he basically has that parish secede, not just secede from Georgia, but basically declare its own independence by sending delegates to Philadelphia without the consent of the colony as a whole. And that's a very radical move for its time, but it did happen. So the bottom line is, is that had Lyman Hall not been so fiercely, had not been a fear, such a fierce advocate for um, Georgia separating from England, I'm not sure who would have been bold enough to have taken that move, uh, considering that Georgia was the most remote to the 13 colonies. I, I do believe it could be safe to say that because Lyman Hall was originally from Connecticut, that he did have a bit of that uh, Yankee charm in him who knew from the get-go that, hey, if my Yankee brethren up north, being in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, are um, at strong odds with the crown, then I've got to find a way to muster the people of Georgia into having that same uh, spirit. Well, he persevered, and because of Lyman Hall, Georgia did enter uh, the fray, or should I say the discussion for independence, and because of his leadership, Georgia was that missing piece that was needed to um, officially help the other colonies 
achieve their mission in declaring separation from England. Now, uh, here's something else that might be worth pointing out. Uh, how many people were living in the colonies at the time of independence? I'll, I can tell you this. It's in the millions, but not, in, but not the same um, number as it would be in today's time. I'll give you a hint. The number is between one and three million. That answer is two and a half million people. Uh, that, for considering for 1776, that was a uh, a, a big number, and it is safe to say that Philadelphia would have been the largest uh, city in colonial America in 1776. Now, uh, what I also found interesting too, that had to do with King George III, it is safe to say that England wasn't thrilled with the decision of the 13 colonies or being her 13 colonies from separating altogether. But I did find it interesting about some of uh, King George III's remarks. This is what he had to say. Nothing could have afforded me so much satisfaction as to have been able to inform you at the opening of this session and what I mean by session is Parliament, that the troubles which have so long distracted my colonies in North America were at an end, and that my unhappy people, recovered from their delusion, had delivered themselves from the oppression of their leaders and returned to their duty. But so daring and desperate is the spirit of those leaders, whose object has always been dominion and power, that they have now openly renounced all allegiance to the crown and all political connection with this country. They have rejected, with circumstances of indignity and insult, the means of conciliation held out to them under the authority of our commission and have presumed to set up their rebellious confederacies for independent states. If their treason be suffered to take root, much mischief must grow from it, to the safety of my loyal colonies, to the commerce of my kingdoms, and indeed to the present system of all Europe. One great advantage, however, will be derived from the object of the rebels being openly avowed and clearly understood. We shall have unanimity at home, founded in the general conviction of the justice and necessity of our measures. Well, it's safe to say that perhaps King George III's response here is kind of like the equivalent of his version of a, of not so much a declaration of independence, but it could be his, his writings here could be seen as a declaration of retaliation, and that is he is, he is vehemently denounced why all 13 colonies have declared their separation from England altogether. Well, he did start to refer to the 13 uh, colonies as ungrateful subjects. Even after the French and Indian War had ended after 1763, especially leading up to 1765 when the colonies were vehemently opposed to paying their share of, of the costs resulting in the outcome of the French and Indian War. As we should all remember, Parliament's uh, treasury system was drained. There was no money left after that war had been fought. But the colonists probably did have a right to say, hey, 
Why should we be footing the bill for this? After all, we didn't send any members overseas to Parliament to support the war. I mean, hey, you all came over here, yes, to help us, but couldn't you all have raised taxes on your end for your treasury? So this is a good example right here of, of early beginnings of taxation without representation. But of course, I do believe it might be safe to say that King George III had assumed all along that, hey, even after the war had ended, being the French and Indian War, that the colonists would do what they had done prior to war breaking out. Well, times had changed, and it's safe to say that perhaps Parliament had not reinvented itself. You know, it's also interesting to note, too, when you look at a colony like Georgia, as mentioned earlier, who was relying on Parliament to um, help fund their uh, war against the Creek Indian Nation, I feel it's safe to say that King George III probably felt betrayed by the fact that uh, Georgia, in the end, did send representatives to, uh, not just to Philadelphia, but representatives who were willing to sacrifice their lives by signing the Declaration of Independence. I think it's safe to say that George III had always assumed that he could rely on people from certain colonies to still be loyal to the crown, like Pennsylvania, perhaps South Carolina, but what he didn't realize was that even before the shots heard around the world took place at um, Concord and Lexington, Massachusetts, what he didn't realize was that the people in the 13 colonies, he, he didn't realize, or I should, I should say that he failed to realize that the people in the 13 colonies were a lot smarter than he ever was willing to give them credit for. In other words, they had enough courage to um, either ouster a royal governor or be able to regroup, like in the case of Virginia, where Lord Dunmore dissolved the House of Burgesses and then fled by boat to go back to England. Basically, King George III assumed that all of his subjects would scream and say, hey, we need somebody else to bail us out. Nope. All, um, pretty much all 13 of the colonies had what it took to establish provincial assemblies, uh, interim you know, forms of government. These men knew what it was like to be able to overcome adversity. It's one thing to overcome it, but you're also going to have to win your independence by means of warfare, too. It's just not going to be handed to you. You're going to have to... Um, go out on a battlefield and go um, shoulder to shoulder or rifle to rifle with the best army in the world. Well, um, what I also do know is this, is that, um, you know, we also should be reminded that, of course, not everything took place on July 4th that most of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, it didn't happen until the start of August. After all, you think about it, they had to debate on it, they came to an agreement, and then they needed time to um, perhaps think about what was going to take place before just uh, signing the document. So not everything just happens right away. But of course, that's the story we've been told for years.
you know, it's interesting that uh, we tend to think of the Stamp Act as being the uh, measure that started all this uh, separation from England. It was just one of a handful of things. Um, I know that the Townshend duties of 1767, where Parliament had placed um, duties on lead, paper, glass, and tea, was another um, insult. We also have, uh, you know, the Quartering Act, which basically forced uh, colonists to provide uh, housing for troops, even in times of peace. And there again, that was done without our consent. The Boston Massacre of 1770, the Boston Tea Party of 1773, Parliament's passage in 1774 of the Coercive Acts, or what's known as the Intolerable Acts, closing the port, well, the colonists referred to them as the Intolerable Acts, but Parliament closing the port of Boston. So all of these things happen that finally leads to that straw that breaks the camel's back, and that is to declare separation from England. And we must be reminded, too, that separation from England was no easy task. It's one thing to be able to declare yourself a separate entity from a higher uh, authority, but the bigger question is, is what are you going to replace that current form of government with? And if you can replace it with something else, how long will it last? Well, we have a government that's still in existence today for 230-some years. And yes, it's not perfect, but it has remained in existence in good times, in bad times, and challenging times. We should be very fortunate to live in a country where where coups don't happen left and right. Yes, our country has seen um, eight presidents die in office. We have also seen some presidents have assassination attempts on them, and yet they have lived. We have seen um, we have seen the best of times, and we have seen the worst of times. But in the end, we can be thankful to wake up each morning to know that there is a government that we can still referred to as a, an institution that functions, even though it's not 100% perfect, but just knowing that we don't live in um, anarchy. We don't live in, um, well, how am I say it? Not so much anarchy. We don't live in chaos. We don't live in, um, we don't, we, we can go to bed each night knowing that there is a, go- that there is a government um, that protects us. Not everybody in the world is fortunate enough to have that. As my wife said, yeah, as my wife said that we are not a um, a form of government that's um, where, where the government controls everything. But, you know, I do have to be reminded of how much work Thomas Jefferson uh, spent in writing the Declaration of Independence, as I had mentioned from my podcast on Virginia, one of the two podcast sessions that His uh, Declaration of Independence um, document saw 86 revisions. I can't imagine what he must have been, what his mind was going through, but he was patient, and it's probably a good thing because he needed all the patience there was in the world. It's easy to forget 
what he, um, he and the other men wrote. But I do think it's important to probably mention a few things that he did um, state. And this is the part that I think is worth mentioning, and then I'll mention some um, facts in his uh, opposition towards uh, Parliament and uh, King George III. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of, of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. And tyranny meaning harsh rule, to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he is utterly neglected to attend to them. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has endeavored to pre prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us all, for us in all cases whatsoever. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Well, these are just a handful of of examples that Thomas Jefferson um, wrote in the in the Declaration of Independence. 
but it's all very well said because this is what Parliament and King George III did. They um, passed a multitude of legislative pieces that um, that impacted uh, the colonists' ability to even function. I think Jefferson would be happy to know today that our democracy is still going strong, but he would be glad to know that we, for example, don't have standing armies in our homes 24-7. He would be glad to know that um, that trade has been cut off on all parts of the world, even though, yes, there are what we call embargoes today, but... Right, as my wife said, we're not militiamen anymore. Of course, militiamen now are what we would call like the Virginia National Guard or any of the other 50 states who have what's called a National Guard. And of course, where he talks about for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, we have John Adams to thank for trial by jury, especially in those uh, in the Boston Massacre trials. But it is good to know that had Jefferson not laid out all these injustices or grievances, then how could our um, case for wanting to declare independence from the mightiest empire in the world be sufficient? It's one thing to declare your independence, but you have to have all the compelling reasons in the world. If you want independence, it's one thing, but it's not going to be handed to you. You're going to have to you know, earn it, and that means not just making compromises with delegates from from other colonies, but by um, going to war. I do believe it's safe to say that when Jefferson wrote all of this, all these um, accusations made by the king against the king in Parliament, he probably knew in his mind that, well, he already knew that war had begun in uh, Concord and Lexington and Bunker Hill. But it just needed, but it, all of this required a document, a document confirming that all 13 colonies were in fact united as one. And I can um, summarize it right here at the very end of this, of his uh, Declaration of Independence. Nor have we been wanting an attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of, of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and peace, friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare 
that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may, ha may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. Well, I feel that this was very worth reading because we do tend to forget just how much work Jefferson put into this document. It wasn't just his signing the document. It wasn't just the other men who signed it. But all of these, um, all of these, uh, what do you call it, grievances that were filed, uh, or these, what do you call it, complaints, these were not just one-time incidents that happened. They had been multiple incidents that had been happening for ten years or more. And yes, had, Parliament, had the colonies reminded Parliament? Yes. As a matter of fact, they took up their case with the king more than once. Of course, you have to remember, they did, we didn't have email back then. We didn't have, uh, we call it Federal Express, to have overnight mail sent to par Parliament or to the Crown. But every time we sent a grievance, it was ignored. You know, you can take your case up with someone left and right until you're blue in the face. But when they don't respond and when they don't, um, listen to what you have to say. Over time, a body like the 13 colonies would have no other choice but to say, hey, we must therefore officially declare separation. We are no longer, no longer going to be um, subjects, not just subjects, but subjects who um, are not give, treated with proper dignity and respect. How much more abuse can um, a nation take? And that's what this declaration is all about, is coming together as one to dissolve independence, or should I say dissolve dependence from England. Now, looking back on things now, and I will, I'll sum this up here, if Jefferson were alive today, I think he would be very, very happy to know just how far our relationship with England has come. And, and we do have a very good relationship with England. It may not be perfect, but Jefferson would be very happy to know, and the rest of our, of our founding fathers would be very happy to know just how uh, far our relationship has come with England. Well, I have really enjoyed uh, sharing this uh, book with, my, with all of you, my fellow listeners, and thank you for taking the time to listen to previous podcasts about signing their lives away. And um, there is another book by this uh, couple that was called, that's called Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the United States Constitution. I have not read that one. If I ever do get the chance to read it, I will. But... Um, Again, thank you for listening. Uh, God bless and uh, stay safe.